Our word that we're looking at together this evening as we continue our one word study is suffering. And when we see the word suffering, we probably think, been there, done that. This may be a word study, but we don't really need to define suffering. We all know what that is. Suffering is being at church at 6 o'clock on a Sunday evening when the Astros have a pivotal playoff game that starts at 7 and the preacher decides to talk for 45 minutes. and You wonder if you're going to make it home in time to see it or not. Don't worry, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I may be a sadist, but I'm not a masochist. I want to get home too and see it. There are a number of words in Scripture, uh, stimuli, that are linked with grief and with suffering. And we could look at those terms. And there are a number of different uh, words in both Hebrew and Greek that convey slightly different concepts that are all rendered by that word suffering in English. But I don't really want to break those down tonight because we're more interested this evening in the experience of suffering. After all, if you are one of those following along in that one-word book, this unit is all about life's challenges. So we know what suffering is from a plain common sense point of view. What we really want to know is how do we deal with that? The English Standard Version, which is the translation I most frequently use, has suffer or suffering or some variant, we're talking here, the English text, 114 times. 80 of those occurrences are in the New Testament alone. So the point is, this is definitely a subject that Scripture wants us to consider if we can gauge it by the frequency with which that word appears. And we all need to consider it because it's something that we all experience. Some of us have probably even been forced maybe quite literally into a, that fetal position where we're crying out to God, wondering why all of this is happening to me and how am I going to get through this? But if we've ever been in that situation, we should take some encouragement knowing that we're not the first to be in that predicament. I think about David back in the sixth Psalm, for instance, verse number six, I am weary with my groaning. All night long I make my bed swim. I drench my couch with my tears. Or we can think of Jesus' suffering, his agony in the garden, so intense that he literally sweated blood. Those capillaries in his forehead burst and blood ran down his scalp. So this is a practical problem, this is a universal problem, and I want us tonight to approach it practically. We're only going to consider one big question tonight, and that is how do we handle suffering? And we're going to approach that question through the lens of the book of Job. If you have your Bible, you might want to open it up to Job. Tristan already read from chapter 42, which is the, the pivotal text, the climax there that we'll return to in a few moments. If there's any story in Scripture that speaks directly to this problem, it's that of Job. And I was a little surprised that in our reading this week, we didn't have anything that came from the book of Job. And now, actually, maybe I'm stepping on my own toes a little bit here uh, because 
the next class we're going to have on a Sunday morning after we finish the one we're doing now after some discussion, we're going to look at the book of Job. So if you're here tonight, I mean, this is the big picture view. I guess you can skip that, you know, three, four, five months of Bible classes, whatever it is. But Job's story, the biblical story of Job is well known. He was a man who's blameless and upright. That's what it says there in chapter one, whom God allowed to be tested. At the urging of Satan, or the Satan, more literally in Job, the adversary, the accuser, God caused him, or allowed him, I should say, to be severely afflicted. He lost his property, he lost his family, he lost even his health, and yet despite these blows, Job held firm to his faith. We read at the end of chapter 1, verse 21, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. At the end of chapter 2, we find that three close friends came from a great distance to try to console him. And eventually, poor old long-suffering Job was restored to his health, restored to his prosperity. He had more children, and he becomes a model of patient endurance. Now that's the story that most all of us know and if we were asked to sum up the story of Job that's probably how we'd go about doing it. But that entire story that I just told is found only in the first and the second chapter and a few verses of the last chapter, chapter 42, only in those prose sections of the book. Meanwhile the bulk of the book, those intervening 39 chapters are poetic, and that's where actually the bulk of the message of the book of Job is found. If we only know that story of patience and reward, then we don't really feel the full impact of this remarkable book. And in particular, we don't really see what it has to say to us in the midst of our suffering. Because if we think it's all about maintaining a, a stiff upper lip and having this sort of stoic steadfastness and endurance when bad things happen to us, that's not really, well, first of all, that's not how Job responded, even if that's how we sort of have an idea that he responded. But that's certainly not what this book is primarily about. So we want to begin by acquainting ourselves with it in its entirety as briefly as we can tonight. We're just going to walk our way through it. Now, Job was a righteous man. We already said that, blameless and upright, as we're introduced to him here in chapter 1. And God holds him up as a model. Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him. And that is what makes him a target for Satan. Well, does Job serve God for no reason? Satan says, you've created a hedge about him so that no harm comes to him. You've blessed him so immensely. Of course he serves you. But if you take all of those things away, then he's going to curse you. And of course, that's what precipitates everything that happens here. And we know this part of the story. In short order, he loses everything, the camel, the the sheep, the oxen. He loses his family. Eventually, even his health is affected. So he loses all of this, and in the midst of this, he does patiently endure in the sense that, as we saw, he doesn't sin. 
Job remains silent after his friends arrive there to comfort him, and they sit there just in silence for days on end. But here we start to get into the part of the story we don't know so well in chapter 3. In chapter 3, he finally speaks, and all of this, this anguish that he has bottled up just burst forth from him. He curses the day of his birth. If you look in verse number three of chapter three, just to give you an idea, we won't read all of it. Let the day perish on which I was born and the night that said a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. On and on he goes like that, and that's some strong, evocative language, but I think you get the gist. Job wishes he was never born. Things are so bad, he wishes he'd never existed. And he does that in the strongest terms imaginable. So strong that his words shock all of his friends there around him. These guys who've sat there in, in silence and solidarity with him for so many days, now they feel compelled to speak. Man, this is way out of character. We've got to, to stand up and, and speak here. And so that's what produces the dialogue that is the bulk of the book. Most of this book, chapter 4 down through chapter 27, is an exchange between Job and those three friends. Uh, his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, they speak to him in order. And then Job responds to what they've said. The main thrust of the message of all of them, and we could break it down further, but this is, this is the bird's eye view. <laughs> the main thrust of each of their speeches has to do with what's usually called the doctrine of retribution. That is, their worldview was that suffering is a punishment for sin without any exception. When they look at Job, they see a man who is suffering greatly. And because suffering is a punishment for sin, the logical conclusion is Job is a sinner. And not only is he a sinner, he must be a seriously wicked sinner to be going through all of those things that he's enduring. And so they urge him to repent. At first, they're they're pretty gentle about it. Well, maybe it's secret. Maybe he didn't know about it. But as Job resists when they tell him to repent, they dig in and they become more forceful. And finally, they just grow frustrated with the fact that this guy is not getting it. He's not listening to them. Meanwhile, Job denies that he's sinned. Not that he's perfect, but if suffering is commensurate with your sins, he certainly hasn't done anything worthy of what he's having to go through. And if you read through his speeches, he admits that before he went through this, he looked at things the same way they did. He had that same worldview that if you were suffering, you must be a sinner. But he knows that's not true in his case. And so he knows there must be something wrong with the way he viewed the world. So as the speeches continue, each side digs in. They become more forceful in their language. And Job ultimately realizes that there's no hope in talking to these guys. They don't have any comfort for him. They don't have any solution. The only place he's going to find any resolution to this problem is taking it to God directly, finding answers from him. 
This dialogue then, as I said, it goes down through chapter 27. It's interrupted in chapter 28 by what we're going to call a hymn to wisdom. This is distinct from anything else in the book. This isn't part of any of the dialogues. This isn't any one of those speakers, not Job, not any of his friends who are speaking here. Likely, this is the work of the inspired author. And it stands just at about the halfway point of this book. And that's important. It's pointing us to something here. This is, this is the center. And it reveals here the point of the work, chapter 28, verse 28, you could read the whole chapter. It's all important, but just to hit the highlights, the last verse, behold the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. That's cluing us into what this book is really all about, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And it reminds us what this test is all about. Why does Satan put Job to the test in the first place? To find out if he really does fear God or not. Does he fear God for no reason, or is it just because he's been blessed? And it shows us here, too, that the true source of wisdom is in the Lord turning to him. That's what we call foreshadowing, because that's going to point us forward to what's so important here toward the end of the book. Job resumes his speaking then in chapter 29, and down through chapter 31, this is his uh, avowal of innocence. And we could get into this more technically, but he's drawing here on some pretty common legal practices in the ancient Near Eastern world. But the upshot is, Job swears here, he takes an oath that he is innocent. They've been accusing him of all of these terrible crimes. He says he hasn't done anything. And the idea from a legal standpoint, is if you take this oath of innocence, your accuser has to face you, has to confront you. So in a sense, he's trying to force God's hand. That's his idea. He's been taking his case increasingly to God. Well, now he swears that he's innocent. He wants God to come down and speak to him. So this is sort of the, the answer to that lament back in chapter 3, where he's at that lowest point. He's in despair. He's wondering why this is happening to him. He's seen that his friends can't give him an answer. Only God can give him that answer. So now he's reached this place where he swears he hasn't done anything and God needs to come and tell him why all of this has happened to him. Job's three friends don't say anything after that. <laughs> that oath of innocence leaves them speechless. I don't know if they're too afraid to say anything. You know, here's a guy, he's obviously a sinner and maybe God's going to strike him dead. Or maybe they're just resigned that... You can't tell this thick-headed fella anything. But at any rate, they don't say anything else. We do have one more speaker, chapter 32 through 37, a young man, Elihu, that we're introduced to. He speaks up. Uh, he wants to defend God's honor. He thinks he can persuade Job here where nobody else has. And his approach is a little bit different, and it's better. It's a more enlightened answer, even if it's not quite correct. He says that not all suffering is a punishment for wickedness. It could be out of God's mercy, not out of his wrath. That is, that he's trying to give you a wake-up call, trying to get you to turn and to repent before it's too late. But of course, as we all know, this still doesn't apply to Job, and so that doesn't satisfy him. And so finally in chapter 38, 
God breaks his silence. He addresses Job out of the storm. And everything has been building towards this. Why is this happening to me? And Job swears he's innocent. God, you need to tell me why. And so God comes and confronts Job. And there's two speeches here. And in the first one, God asks some rhetorical questions about creation. And I won't uh, read through all of this, but chapter 38, verse 2, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I'll question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were its bases sunk on? Or who laid the cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? So he asked him about creation, and then there's a brief interlude where Job basically says, you know, I'm sorry, I don't know what I was talking about. And God says, no, 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 I'm going to continue. And God questions him then about a couple of beasts, uh, behemoth and the leviathan. But the point of all this is, Job, you think you're so smart, you can question me. I'm going to ask you some questions, wise guy. Why don't you answer these to me, and then I'll give you the answer to yours. The point is, God lays out his supreme wisdom, his supreme power. He's in control of everything. And he not only created all of this, but he continues to sustain it. He continues to oversee it. Surely if he does that for the rest of creation, he's going to do it for Job, the one who's his servant. And Job sees just how insignificant, how little he knows in comparison. And that brings us to our text, Job's response there in chapter 42 and the epilogue. We're going to read through this in, in just a moment, even though Tristan read it a moment ago. But Job admits he's spoken out of turn. He repents, as I said. We'll talk more about that momentarily. And then we have this brief prose epilogue where the three friends are condemned. They've spoken wrongly about God. Job hasn't, by the way. That's worth noting. So they're not punished because Job intercedes for them with prayer and with sacrifice. And then Job is commended. His fortunes are restored. He lives to a ripe old age. So we said if any story in the Bible has to do with the problem of suffering, it's this one. What does this story have to say to us about suffering? First of all, I want you to note this well. This book is not about the problem of suffering. That's what we usually say it's about. But when we talk about the problem of suffering, that's, that's abstract, that's theoretical, that's conceptual. This book isn't about that. This book is about Job's suffering in particular, and I think that's an extremely important distinction to make. You read through this, Job suffered physically. He lost all of his wealth and his children in one day. Eventually, he was afflicted with this terrible disease. We don't know exactly what it was, but if you read through the whole book, you find things like he had sores all over his body that he had to scrape with shards of pottery just to get some relief. His joints were aching. He stank to the point that people didn't want to be around him. He couldn't sleep. Uh, he had bad breath. 
on and on and on it goes with his physical suffering. He also suffered socially. He had been a respected elder, one of the most important people in the community, uh, one of the most esteemed men in all of the East, and yet here he finds himself as an outcast, a pariah. He's sitting on the ash heap outside of the city, and people are, are making fun of him or they won't have any contact with him. He suffers spiritually. God seems to be silent. He'd thought that God was on his side, and now it seems like God's withdrawn from him, and that silence terrifies him. He starts to think that God actually takes some joy in afflicting him, if you read through what he says. And Job experiences a, a range of emotional trouble, if you read through his, uh, his statements. He has these dark thoughts he experiences rejection, fear, loneliness. You see, this book is personal. It is individual. It's existential. And, of course, that's the way all suffering is. And I don't think we should overlook that. It's an important reminder for us. We shouldn't treat suffering like it is some sort of abstract theological problem. It's not something for us to philosophize about. It's concrete. It's real. It involves real people and real pain. We could have a good lesson on just this, and in fact, I'd wanted to include more of this, but for time's sake, I just couldn't. But you can look at Job's three friends and have a good lesson on how to help, or better, how not to help people who were hurting. Someone who is in pain doesn't need you to be analytical. They don't need you to be dogmatic the way Job's friends were. They don't need you to try to offer an explanation for why this is happening to them. They don't need you to say things no matter how well-intentioned, like this is all part of God's plan. They don't need you to say, well, I know just how you feel, because suffering's individual, and we don't actually know exactly how someone else feels. What they need, what Job needed, they need you to care, and they need you to demonstrate that by letting you letting them express their pain without feeling threatened. Job obviously could not do that. We need to listen more than we speak when people come to us in pain. And we need, unlike his friends, to be willing to say, I don't know, instead of trying to offer some wrong-headed, dogmatic explanation for what's going on, canned answers that a lot of times aren't right and really do more harm than good. And now I've talked here about how to help other people who are hurting, but that all goes for when you or when I am the one hurting too. It's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to be confused. It's okay to be hurting. Job was going through all of those things, and he didn't sin just because he was experiencing those difficult emotions. Well, then what does this book have to say about why we suffer? Because surely it answers that question. That's the question Job asked, right? Why is this happening to me? That's why he confronts God. And that's the question that we all ask. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why is this happening to me, Lord? Surely it must address this question. Well, if you read through the book, 
it offers a number of reasons for why a person might suffer. As a consequence of sin, obviously that's what the three friends hit on repeatedly. And you know what? That's true. Sometimes people do suffer as a consequence for sin, even if we wouldn't state it nearly as strongly as the friends do, that it's invariable, that it's the wicked who suffer without any sort of exception. Sin causes suffering. We know that. That's clear throughout Scripture. Suffering could be a chastening for a righteous man. Elihu advances that. And you know what? That scripturally is true too. Jesus even experienced that. The Hebrews writer says, chapter 5, verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. So sometimes we experience suffering to chasten us. Suffering can be a test of character. The book advances that. And you know what? That's true too. Uh, we can think of several passages, but I think of James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And of course, maybe most ominously, this book points out to us that suffering can even happen for no reason whatsoever. Job chapter 2 and verse number 3, after Job's passed that first round of testing, there comes another day when the Satan comes into the midst of God's court, and the Lord says to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him without reason. Literally, no reason for it, for Satan to do that. Scripture and experience both teach us that all of these reasons are true. And of course, when we think about this, think about it from the standpoint of the book. The question Job's asking, why is he suffering? We know the answer to that. Job doesn't, but as readers of the book, we know that from the very beginning. We're privy to information Job doesn't have, that confrontation between God and Satan there at the outset. And in fact, this question, Job is interested in why he's suffering. The friends are interested in why he's suffering. God's not interested in answering that question. In fact, though God speaks to Job, he never answers that question. And that right there should clue us in to the fact that something more fundamental is at stake here. If we go now to chapter 42, Job has confronted God. He demands an explanation. Why is this happening? And God responds with all of those questions. Well, you answer me some questions first, Job. And the point of all of that, as we said, is you don't really understand what you're asking about Job, you're not nearly as smart as you think you are. I'm the one who's in control. You just need to trust me no matter what's going on here. That's the real issue of this book. That's the real problem, not of suffering, but in the midst of suffering. Will Job continue to trust God even though he is suffering? After all, that's what that test was about at the very beginning, right? Well, Job, here in our text, he's contrite. He confesses he's spoken beyond his knowledge. I know that this is chapter 42, verse 2. I know that you can do all things and that no pur purpose of yours can be thwarted. 
Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I've uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. God can do all things. No purpose of his can be thwarted. No power in heaven or on earth is strong enough to be able to overthrow what he's planning. Job admits here he's been out of his depth. And then he submits himself to God. Verse 4, here and I will speak. I will question you and you will make it known to me. That's quoting God, if you hadn't noticed that from what we read earlier. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job says he'd heard about God. But his faith no longer depends on that second-hand testimony. It doesn't depend on what his elders have told him. Now his faith is deeper. It's stronger. It's more personal. And then verse number 6. This is one of the most important verses in the book. Maybe the most important. Job says, I despise myself. That's a strong reaction. But what he's saying is he sees himself in comparison to God. Just how weak, just how limited he is compared to a God who created everything. And then he confesses that he's no better than those dust and ashes that he sits on. He renounces all his false pride. I repent in dust and ashes. Now this word repent here is interesting because it can also be translated as I'm comforted. That's the way it is in a footnote down here in the English Standard Version. So it could be Job saying, It doesn't matter that I'm suffering, that I'm out here on the ash heap. I'm still comforted. I trust in you. That could be it, that the dust and ashes don't matter here. It can also be translated as recant. And I think that, personally, I think that's the best way to think of this here. Job doesn't repent in the sense we usually think about it, that theologically loaded sense, because Job hasn't committed any sin to repent of. We're told that at the beginning. We're told that in the last chapter too. But the idea at the heart of this is a strong change of direction. He's turning from one way to another. Unlike repentance, there's not any attitude of remorse here, but the idea is Job had lodged this complaint with God, this oath of innocence. I want you to come and answer me. Job's withdrawing that. He realizes that He's not in any position to be challenging God. So in other words, he's surrendering the last vestige of his self-righteousness here. From now on, he's going to locate his worth in that relationship with God. So in other words, God's answer in Job's response here in chapter 42 revealed to us the real why of suffering. And that is that there is no one answer. In fact, that's asking the wrong question. It's looking at this all wrong. The question isn't why any one of us suffers individually because we're all going to suffer. It's inevitable. Each of us in countless different ways all through our lives, we all have and we all will again. The question is when we suffer, as we inevitably do, how will we respond to that? Will we reject God the way Satan said Job would do back at the beginning of this story? Or will we continue to trust in him 
and a God that's wise and all-powerful and benevolent. To just reiterate, you think back to the beginning of the book, that's what it's all about. That's what this test is. Will Job remain faithful even if he suffers? And he did. It wasn't easy, but Job persevered even though he was grappling with that faith the whole time. And so the question we need to ask and what we need to take home from this lesson is not an explanation for the the why of suffering, but it's how have we, how do we, how will we respond to suffering in our life? That's what's at stake here. This book teaches us that the righteous can and do suffer, and we're in good company when we suffer innocently. Job did. Jesus himself did. Sometimes in suffering, Scripture teaches us there are lessons that we can learn that we can't see at the time. And maybe in hindsight, we can see how it actually brought about something beneficial for us. Sometimes we may never understand why something happened to us, even with that benefit of hindsight. We might not ever be able to find an explanation. But this book reminds us we don't have to. It's not our job to explain everything. We can question it. We can even get angry with God the way that Job did. That's okay. But ultimately, like Job, we need to turn to him in seeking those answers, even when we don't understand, even when we're upset with him, even when we think it's not fair, rather than turning away from him and rejecting it. Even in Job's despair, he looked to God for the resolution to his suffering. This book reminds us, even when things are bad, God is in control. He can be trusted. Will we do that? Do we do that? If your faith is not what it ought to be this evening, and you need to make changes in a public way, it's the Lord's invitation while we stand and while we sing.